0: Please be seated. <clears throat> all right. Good morning. Man, it's so good to see you all here. And what a great way to s- start our Advent season by singing and worshiping together. And uh, before we jump into the message, I just wanted to uh, recap again what ended last week the Operation Christmas Child and the Pack a Box, Give a Box, where uh, we were giving both shoe boxes to go globally to. Uh, children for Christmas, but also local finances. You guys were giving to Fire Relief just up the road in Napa. And I just wanted to say that I was so encouraged by your generosity. And as your pastor, I was just so proud to see the response. And ever since we got here, Amber and I have known that this is a a generous church. But we just continue to see that over and over again. And so I just wanted to say, uh, well done. And it's so encouraging to see your generosity, that you are willing to show love for people that are in need through giving of your resources and of your time. And so, uh, well done. That was really exciting to see. And a huge thanks to Kristen Demers for, just for running it and bringing the energy and the focus. She just did such a great job making it happen and coordinating it. And so, Kristen, well done. We're grateful for you. Uh, with that, open up your Bible to Luke chapter 24. Uh, for the next few weeks, we're going to do it a little differently. We're taking a break from our series walking through the Gospel of Mark to uh, focus instead on this Advent season. And we're going to look to a few different places in Scripture over our time together. Uh, Advent in Latin means coming. And so it's a time where historically the church, on the church calendar, this is a time of year where we look to the coming of Christ. And that points us back to the first coming of Christ as the first Christmas tells us the baby in a manger was Christ the Lord. But the season of Advent points us beyond just that to the return of Christ. So we look to the second coming of Christ. And so it's with both of those in view that we come to this season of Advent, this season of longing and anticipation and preparation to receive Christ as King and Lord. And so as we prepare to do that this morning, would you pray with me? Father, thank you for this uh, time together where we can open up your word and we can sing to you and worship you as your people and remember, uh, Jesus, that you came to us and you will come again. And so as your people, we wait expectantly for you. We want to prepare our hearts to worship you, to receive you, to follow you more fully with our lives. So we give you this time, Lord. Would you take it and use it and speak to us through your word? God, would you be pleased in all that takes place here this morning? It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. All right. To get started, I want to encourage you, take a second, turn to someone next to you. I want to encourage you to share one of your favorite book series or movie series that you love. I'm not talking about like a standalone book or a standalone movie, I'm talking about a series, maybe a trilogy, maybe longer, that you absolutely love. Just what comes to mind, real quick, share it with someone real quick right next to you. Take a second to do that. All right, all right. Love it. Love it. Let's bring it back together now. Bring it back. bring it back. All right. Here we go. Coming back. Coming back. Coming back. That was, all right. Well done. You guys, great. Love the engagement. Love the energy. Fantastic. What were some of the things that were said? Some of your favorites. Can here Just shout them out. Chronicles of Narnia, of course. Harry Potter, Harry Potter of course. Rocky. Rocky, okay, yeah, the Rocky trilogy, right? That was Star Wars. We got Stranger Things, okay, on Netflix now. Okay, okay, so you you get the idea. A lot of those stories. Now, let me ask you this: When you begin reading those stories, or watching those shows, or those movies, where do you start? The beginning. The beginning. You don't pick up Harry Potter number six and start reading there or number seven. I mean you, you could and you'd still get something out of it beneficial but no you start with book number one or movie number one of the series. When we come to the Bible though we uh, tend to do it a little differently because unless you were born and raised in an orthodox Jewish home likely your primary exposure, your first exposure, and uh, the majority of your exposure to Scripture probably comes from the New Testament, which comes a little further down the line compared to the Old Testament, naturally. So you're familiar with the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and John, and the letters of Paul, and the other writings in the New Testament, Book of Philippians, Book of Romans, things like that sound familiar, but then the Old Testament is a little bit less familiar for us. Now, this Bible that I preach from and use has exactly 1,000 pages, which is kind of cool. It has exactly 1,000 pages. Now, guess, what page do you think the New Testament starts on? If you guess? Okay. It begins on page 775. That's almost 78% of the way through the Bible is when we see Jesus come on the scene in Galilee. So 78% of God's Word and of the Bible comes before that takes place. And so if we pick up and read the New Testament, which is a good thing to do, that would be the equivalent of picking up Harry Potter, book number six, and starting reading from there. Or the Lord of the Rings, Return of the King, the third book in the series, starting some of the way through that book and just going from there. Or I was going to say something about The Little House on the Prairie, but I don't know how many books are in that series, so I won't go there. But now, I say this, not, that's not a bad thing. It's not bad to pick up and read the New Testament. In fact, I think that's a great place to start for us, because we see the person of Christ and the work of salvation and God's plan for history, and so we get all of that from the New Testament. So it's not bad to start there, but I think I just want us to realize that if we don't eventually go back and realize the context of the Old Testament and how the coming of Christ and the New Testament is the fulfillment of these ancient Jewish Scriptures, then we're going to miss out on a bit of the the richness and a bit of the depth that Scripture shows us, a bit of the, the meaning of Christ coming to us at Christmas. And so the reason we're starting in Luke 24 today is because it's going to show us a key to how to understand the Old Testament when we go back and look at it. In Luke 24, Jesus has already been arrested and tried and died on the cross, and he rose again to life on that first Easter Sunday. Later that day, he's walking with some of his disciples. Or to say it more accurately, two of his disciples are walking from the city of Jerusalem to the road of Emmaus, or to Emmaus, which was about seven miles away. It was a small village outside of town. And while these two disciples are on their way, Jesus comes up and strikes up a conversation with them. But they don't know that it's him. And so he says, guys, what, what are you talking about? And they say, what, what do you mean, what are we talking about? Have you not heard of all the events that have taken place in Jerusalem these past few days? And they tell him about this Jesus figure that came in great power, and they thought he was the Messiah? But then he was arrested, and he was tried, and he was killed on a cross. And there were these kind of murmurs that he might be alive again, but these disciples weren't fully sure if that was true yet. And they said, we thought he would be the one that would redeem Israel. We thought he would be the Savior or the Messiah of God's people, but he died at the hands of the Romans, so we're not so sure anymore. So I want you to see how Jesus responds in verse 25 of Luke chapter 24. With all the grace intact, he said to them, verse 25, How foolish you are! Jesus doesn't hold any punches. Comes right at him. How foolish you are and how slow to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Verse 26, Did not the Messiah have to suffer these things and then enter his glory? And so he talks to these two disciples on the road and he says, guys, don't you see? Don't you remember what the word of God says? What the prophets have spoken in the scriptures? That the Messiah had to suffer and die and then enter his glory. And so everything is going according to plan. Don't you see? And then verse 27. And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. This is a huge verse for how we understand the Old Testament, Luke 24, verse 27. It says, Jesus starts with Moses, just shorthand for the first five books of the Old Testament, and he goes through all the prophets, all the rest, so all of the Old Testament in shows, explains to them how it all is pointing forward to him. He goes through all the Old Testament, showing how it speaks of him. And I would have loved to have heard that sermon. Don't you Bible study with Jesus where Jesus sits there and opens up the Old Testament and walks you through book by book? Remember in Genesis when this happened or when so-and-so said this, that was pointing to me. And remember in Exodus when when this happened and -and so-and-so, that was pointing to me and preparing you for me. And, And the prophets Isaiah and Jeremiah and Ezekiel and so on, on and on through the books of the Old Testament, it's pointing you, preparing you for me. This shows us an approach to the Old Testament that we can go back now and see how all along the story of Scripture points us forward and prepares us for the coming of Christ. Because you read through the Old Testament and you sense just this longing that's there, this lack of fulfillment, if you will. There are hopes that have not been fulfilled and promises that have not come to pass, and brokenness that has not been restored yet, as if all the people of God and all the earth is waiting for something to happen, or waiting for someone to come. And this is kind of the theme of our Advent series for the next couple of weeks. It's called Promise Kept where we're going to take a few weeks to look back at some of these passages from the Old Testament, likely some of the passages that Jesus on the road to Emmaus that day pointed out to his disciples. He said, don't you see how that was pointing forward to me? And we're going to see how in the person of Jesus Christ, God is keeping the promises that he has made to his people and to the world. So we're going to start in Genesis chapter 3. So turn with me, we don't have slides today, so turn with me. From Luke 24, way back to Genesis chapter 3, the very first book of the Bible. Just three chapters in is where we're going to start. If you're unfamiliar with the book of Genesis, chapters 1 and 2 tell in detail the creation of the world. That God created all things. And when he saw his creation, he called it very good. He made the heavens and the earth, the cosmos, the planets, the rivers, the dogs and ducks and trees and everything else, and then he made human beings unique. He made human beings, humanity, different from all the rest. It says he made us in the image of God. That men and women reflect God in a way that nothing else in all of creation does. And he saw all of us and he said it is very good. But then we come to chapter 3, where human history takes an unfortunate turn. And you see this right away in verse 1. It says, Now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. And that verse right away strikes kind of an ominous, dark tone of what might be to come. There's this crafty, deceptive serpent that is in paradise somehow, and he says to the woman, verse 1 continues, did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? Again, back in chapters 1 and 2, God placed Adam and Eve, our first parents, in the garden and said to them, all of the trees and all of the plants are there for your enjoyment, for you to eat. Just don't eat from the one in the middle. If you eat of it, you will surely die. And so the serpent comes on the scene in chapter 3, verse 1, this enemy of God that's crafty and deceptive and says, did God really say that you can't eat from any tree? Of course, twisting the words of God already, and then we skip ahead a little bit to verse 4, and he says to the woman, you will not certainly die which is a direct contradiction to what God had said. God says you will surely die. He says, you're not going to die if you eat this fruit. And so right away we see the voice of the serpent, the enemy of God, contradicting the words of God, saying what God has said is not true. But Eve, being deceived, took the fruit of the one tree that was forbidden and ate it, and Adam does The same, and in this act they disobeyed God, they sinned against God, and forever changed the course of history and the world. And there God soon after comes looking for Adam. Tries to find Adam and Eve, and look at verse ten. Say, Adam, where are you? Verse ten, Adam answers, I heard you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, and so I hid. And he said, God's saying, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree that I commanded you not to eat from? And then Adam does his very best to take the blame and own up to the sin. And he says in verse 12, the woman you put here with me, she gave me some fruit from the tree and I ate it. I mean, he pulls the double deflection. The woman that you gave me is the problem here and I took it and I ate. And the Lord God said to the woman in verse 13, what is this you have done? And the woman said, the serpent deceived me and I ate. Now, we could spend weeks unpacking this passage. There's so much here that that speaks of uh, the state of the world and sin and our relationship with God, and we can't cover every detail, but I want us to see just a couple things really quickly. First, already in the opening chapters of Scripture, we see the stage set for the entire uh, rest of Scripture. We see these huge theological pillars set up. And the first is the doctrine of creation. We see in Genesis 1 and 2 that God created everything. He created everything good. It all belongs to Him. We belong to Him. All of nature belongs to Him. Everything was good and we were made in God's image to enjoy Him and to cultivate and to see this earth flourish, all of it done to the glory of God. But we also see in these early chapters of Scripture the reality of sin, the doctrine of sin or fall into disobedience and rebellion that began with Adam and Eve as they disobeyed God and they were cast out of the garden and relationship with God was broken And we see that this event says ripples throughout the cosmos and and chaos and death and decay enter God's good creation. Already in chapter 4, the very next chapter, we read of violence, we read of murder. It doesn't take long for things to deteriorate. And so though everything was created by God, us included, everything was created good, but now it is marred or affected or tainted in some way by the effects of sin and the fall. And if we think about that, it explains a lot about the world we see around us today. This isn't a hard truth to prove. You don't have to be a Christian to take a look around at the world and read the news and see, again, things aren't the way they're supposed to be. We see violence and abuse and murder and neglect and lying and cheating and stealing and destruction of all kinds all around us in our own lives out in the world today. And so we can trace this back as Christians, we have an easy answer. We see it. It's because of the fall of our first parents and sin entering the world. And now we, as humanity, have this bent away from God and towards sin. But the story does not stop there. It goes on. Verse 14. So the Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and all Wild animals. You will crawl on your belly and you will eat dust all the days of your life. Verse 15, and I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head and you will strike his heel. Okay, so God curses the serpent for his role in what happened. The serpent, the liar, the deceiver. And verse 15 is very important. It says, There will be enmity or hostility between you and Satan, and the woman. And between the offspring of the woman, so humanity, and you, Satan. Now, if the serpent here was just a snake, then we would just conclude from this that human beings won't get along with snakes. And that would be true because snakes are terrifying. You can ask Indiana Jones about that. Snakes are bad news and scary. But it's not really the point of what's going on here in the passage is not just talking about snakes in general and humanity in general, because we see that the serpent of Genesis 3 is Satan himself, the devil himself, the accuser himself, the enemy of God, the one that stands opposed to God. And we see elsewhere in Scripture, especially the book of Revelation, that the serpent of Genesis 3 is identified as Satan. Satan, the Accuser, the enemy of God, who is not equal and opposite to God. He's created by God, but somehow along the way turned and fell into sin and rebellion against God. And so here, notice what God says to that serpent. He says in verse 15, there will be hostility between you and the offspring of the woman. And he, the offspring of the woman, will crush your head and you will, Will strike his heel. He's saying, one day, someone will come who will be born of a woman, their offspring, who will crush your head, Satan, who will destroy you. Though you strike his heel, they will deal a fatal, decisive blow to your head. This is what the early church fathers and most scholars today see as the proto. Evangelium. It's a big seminary word. That was for free. Proto-evangelium. <laughs> and it means the first gospel where we look to Scripture, and this is the first place in Scripture, Genesis 3:15, where God promises to correct what is broken, to save, to restore, and to uh, confront and deal with evil. The first place we see God promise to do this. And so already in the first chapters of Scripture, we see the doctrine of creation, we see the doctrine of sin and the fall, and we see the promise of redemption, or the promise of a deliverer that will come and deal with evil and save from the work of the enemy. And so if you're reading through the Old Testament with that as your foundation, you would naturally be looking along the way for who that deliverer would be? Who is this offspring of the woman that will come and crush the head of the serpent and destroy the work of death and evil in the world? And If you look throughout the Old Testament, no one really fits the bill. I mean, the first offspring of Adam and Eve, Cain and Abel, we see what happens with their story, violence, murder, death again, that's not the answer. And then along the way, we see the figures, Noah, Abraham, Moses, David, Solomon, on and on, these famous pillars of the Old Testament. And we see God using them in powerful ways, but at the same time, we see them marked by sin themselves. And that they, at different points in their life, fall prey to the deception of the serpent. And their lives, in some way, are marked by sin. And so the people of the Old Testament are waiting, looking, longing for this one, this offspring of the woman to come and deliver and save and crush the work of the serpent. I believe that this is one of those places where on the road to Emmaus, most likely Jesus took those disciples back to Genesis 3.15 and said, guys, don't you see? Don't you see how that is pointing forward to me. Don't you see how I fulfill that promise? We see in the life of Christ, this promise kept, this promise fulfilled. I mean, think about it. A couple elements to the promise. One, it will be the offspring of the woman that comes to crush. Meaning, it will be a, a human being, one born of a woman. We see in the early chapters of the gospel, whether it's Matthew or especially Luke chapter three, the genealogy of Christ, they go to great lengths to show that Jesus has a lineage. His life is connected back to Adam and Eve. He came from the Virgin Mary. He was born. And so, of course, we affirm that Jesus was fully God, divine in every way. And at the same time, the mystery of Christmas is that Jesus came as a man and had a physical body and walked the earth. He was born of a woman. So that fits Genesis 3.15. We continue to see at the end of verse 15, the offspring of the woman will crush the head of the serpent, but the serpent will strike the heel of this one who is to come. There will be some kind of wound inflicted Some kind of striking down of this one who is to come. Some kind of blow will be delivered to the heel of this Messiah figure. It's interesting then that as we look to the New Testament and the life of Christ, we see that he died on the cross. A type of mortal wound, a blow, a strike against him. And notice in Luke 22, you don't have to turn there, I'm just going to read it there. On the night that Jesus was betrayed, when those in power came to arrest him and try him and ultimately kill him, Luke 22, the night of the Last Supper, says this. It says in verse 1, Now the festival of unleavened bread, called the Passover, was approaching, and the chief priests and the teachers of the law were looking for some way to get rid of Jesus, for they were afraid of the people. Then verse 3, then Satan entered Judas, called Iscariot, one of the twelve. And Judas went to the chief priests and the officers of the temple guard and discussed with them how he might betray Jesus. So We see that name, Satan, the accuser, the serpent, show up once again. The same snake of Genesis 3, now on the scene leading to Christ's death and crucifixion. We know that Judas was not innocent in these events. He made willing choices that led to this. But we see that in some way, Satan was involved. This great ancient enemy of God empowered or influenced these decisions, this betrayal of Christ, and ultimately the crucifixion of Christ on the cross. So Jesus' heel was struck by the enemy. But... This is not the end of the story. It was not an ultimate, final, crushing blow to Christ. It was a blow to the heel, not the head. Because then what happens? We see the resurrection, that Jesus rose again, that he conquers the grave, he conquers death, and conquers the work of the enemy. We see that it's through the cross through his death and resurrection, that he brings new life to the world. Hebrews chapter 2, verse 14 says this, He too shared in their humanity, so that by his death he might break the power of him who holds the power of death, that is, the devil, and free those who all their lives were held in slavery by the fear of death. Again, Hebrews 2, 14, By his death... He might break the power of him who holds the power of death, that is, the devil. And so through Christ's death on the cross and his resurrection, he breaks the power of death in the enemy. 1 John 3 says it more specifically in verse 8. It says, The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the devil's work. In 1 John 3.8. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the devil's work. So we see that Jesus came. Why? To put an end to the work of deception and death and destruction that began in Genesis chapter 3 in the garden. Satan struck his heel. But he struck his head. He dealt a crushing blow to the enemy as he rose from the grave and broke the power of death that Satan began. And this is the heart of Christmas, of the gospel message. That the people of the Old Testament were looking forward to this Savior, this promise of this one who would come and free the people of earth from evil, from death, from darkness we see in the person of Jesus Christ those promises are fulfilled and that if we would believe in this Jesus, put our faith in him, give him our lives, then we would be forgiven. And like he was raised from the dead, we too can walk in newness of life and has his spirit within us, be forgiven of our sin and adopted into God's family. This is our hope. The person of Jesus Christ. So again, we look back to Genesis 3.15. The promise of a Messiah that would come and crush the head of the serpent. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head and you will strike his heel. Can I be willing to bet that Jesus on the road to Emmaus that day took his disciples to Genesis 3.15 and says, I'm the offspring of the woman. My heel was struck by the enemy, but I have crushed his head because I am alive and can give you life as well. And so today, we're left to consider exactly what this might mean for us? Because I don't want this to be just an abstract theological concept that we affirm, but what actually does this mean for our lives, for our hearts, for us today in this season of Advent? I think there's a couple things. First, it means again that God keeps his promises, right? That he has a plan, that he is fulfilling, that he is at work in the world. God is not like MacGyver, and yes, I'm old enough to remember MacGyver. Okay? If you haven't seen the show, MacGyver was this, I don't know, FBI agent, ex-military guy who would try and save all these day, all the days, the days that he was trying to save. He would go and save them and stop evil and address problems like stopping a train or some criminals from getting away. But he would always do it in this kind of last-minute throw-it-together kind of way. Like, how are we going to stop this train from going off a hill? Well, I got, like, a hot sauce packet and a paperclip and this copy of Reader's Digest. So, like, let's let's go for it, and hopefully it works out. And it would, usually. He was pretty amazing. He was like, I guess this will work. But that's not what God is like. God is not thrown into some situation and caught off guard and, oh, no, what are we going to do to figure this out? No, we see God's plan and purposes and promises from the very beginning of time now coming to pass in the coming of Christ. We see God at work with great intentionality and care and planning that He might be glorified, that His world might be blessed he doesn't just improvise. And so we can be reminded that as we live today, we do not live in a God-forsaken world. We do not, do not live in a place where we are forgotten, where God is kind of scrambling, trying to figure it out. We see that God knows what He's doing, that God's in charge, and we wait for Him to return again. And that's kind of the second takeaway, I think, that we need to reflect on today that we live in this kind of in-between place where Jesus came at Christmas and he died on a cross and he rose again and he did deal a decisive blow to Satan and to death as he conquered it through his resurrection. And yet we still look at our world today and we see signs of death and decay and deception. And for some of us, that's hit very close to home. And so we live in the tension of the already and the not yet we're not quite there yet the new heavens and the new earth have not been fully established jesus has not returned and as revelation 20 says cast the devil the deceiver into the lake of fire for good that has not happened yet and so we live in this tension in this place of longing where we affirm that jesus came as he promised he would but we still are waiting for the time He will come again, as He has promised to do. And so we wait. We have to embrace that tension, recognizing that God is with us, and while we wait, we put our hope in Christ. Because really, this season, more than any, often stirs up, In us, this sense of longing, this sense of unmet expectations. I don't know what it is, this time of year, this Christmas season. Maybe it's the fact that the days are shorter. There's more darkness out there. It kind of leaves us longing for the light. Or nature, the the trees are bare and nature itself is kind of reminding us of death that's leaving us longing for the spring and longing for new life. Maybe it's the cold weather, granted not as cold as Colorado like we're used to, but it's cold and the harsh winds, the chill is a little bit stronger on our skin. It leaves us longing for warmth. Again, a lot of us this time of year spend time with family, which can be a great joy, but sometimes time with family, again, leaves us with the feeling of struggle or pain or loss or reminds us of wounds or, again, unmet expectations. Or maybe we don't spend a lot of time with family this time of year and it reminds us of loneliness and loss. And so in this season, there's this collective longing that I think we as people, but especially as the people of God, experience. We're waiting for the fullness of peace and fullness of rest and fullness of God's good restoration plan to take place. And so it's there that we have to consider where do we look for hope? Where do we point our eyes and turn our attention Again, there's many places we could look. could look to food or shopping or human beings or politicians or any number of things that we think are going to give us hope for what is to come. But really, Scripture reminds us that the only place that we can look is the Lord Jesus Christ. He is our hope. He is the promised Savior that came to us and defeated darkness and death forever, and will return again. He's the one that the world has been longing for and waiting for. And so this promised Savior, this promised Messiah of Genesis 3.15 has a name, and his name is Jesus. And he came, and he will come again. And so I'd encourage us to look to him in this season, to put our hope in him. As we wrap up the message this morning often we look for a tangible response or a tangible application again hear this message and then okay what should I go and do now because of this and oh, I might disappoint some of us today because I don't I don't I don't know if I have the the best tangible go and do this or uh, make this happen exactly or do this in your schedule a little differently. I think the place that these passages bring us is just a greater love for the Lord. Something that can't necessarily be quantified or, or uh, tactilely experienced or touched on the outside. It's something that we have to experience, this, this growing hope in Christ and this celebration of Christ. And so that's why we're here today to, to worship Jesus and to sing to Jesus and to thank Jesus. Jesus and celebrate Him and pray to Him and hear His Word and put our faith and trust in Him. So that's the as close as we can get to a takeaway this morning, my friends, is let's be a people that in this season of Advent celebrate the Lord, make much of Him, worship Him, sing loudly to Him together. Would you pray with me? God, we thank you for your word. Thank you that it all speaks of your grace, your salvation found only in Jesus Christ. We are grateful and we come to you in humility, aware of our need, our dependence, our inability to save ourselves, our inability to fix the world on our own. God, we come to you with our faith turned to you, with our hope placed in you, Jesus, as our Savior, as our Messiah, as our King. We love you, and it's in your name we pray. Amen.